Commission here this week, but we will be continuing our sermon series, Is He Enough? from Hebrews. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 as we're going to be continuing that series, walking through that text here together this morning. While you turn there, let me just say, if you're new here, let me give you a special welcome. We're glad you're visiting with us. We're glad you're here. We'd encourage you to grab a gift from us in a new attender's bag just out this red door at the Welcome Center. It's a gift from us. It's got a card inside that you can give us your information. If there's any way we can be a ministry to you, we would love to do that. And we'd encourage you to grab that on your way out. Um, I also want to remind you of what is sitting here in front and what you probably noticed as you walked in, uh, the Christmas boxes. Uh, we are still sending those out. We'd encourage you to take one on your way out as kids all over the world will have the opportunity to possibly celebrate their first Christmas and we'll hear the gospel shared with them through this small gift. So I would encourage you to grab one, grab two, do some shopping with your kids, with your family, with someone, um, and then return those to us on November 14th so we can send those out. Not only will kids around the world who have probably never experienced Christmas before get the chance to open your box, but they'll also get the chance to hear about Christ and his love for them. So we've got more. We'd encourage you to grab one on your way out. Hopefully you've had enough time to find Hebrews 4 as we'll be walking through that this morning. Um, but have you ever had one of those weeks, one of those weeks where you feel like you're chasing your tail, where you don't feel like you're getting anywhere, where you're struggling to find a moment to sit down or a moment to rest? Uh, maybe you've had one of those nights when you can't seem to sleep, when you toss and turn and stare at the ceiling and maybe think and pray and try to get yourself to sleep and you just can't bring yourself to find any rest. We call it a restful night, if you will. I don't know what sort of experience you had coming into this week, but this week was one of those for me. Uh, as I was staring down the barrel of what may be the most difficult passage I've ever preached on before, um, over the weekend last week, my wife got sick. And so I was home on Monday and Tuesday helping to watch the kids as she got to feeling better. And if you can imagine, if you know my family, I've got a, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and an infant. So there wasn't a whole lot of studying getting done at my home when I was home. Um, I went into the office on Wednesday and had some meetings in the morning, sat down Wednesday afternoon and be like, I'm going to dig in, I'm going to keep reading this passage to understand it, and my computer proceeded to crash about four times on me and I lost all of my work multiple times, which is never done before, like it's not, a, like, it's not like we've had a tech issue at the church or anything. Um, so I'm like, okay, at least there's Saturday, right? So I get up early on Saturday morning, I drive into scooters, I open my computer, and the same issue happens. And it's so bad that I can't even access my files on the server. I can't, even get my, I can't even get my outline, so I have to drive down here to the church to find my outline. At about 9.30 Saturday morning, still wrestling with the text, still struggling with what to say on Sunday morning, worried about what I was going to share, worried about understanding what the text had to say, worried about looking like an idiot when I got up here the next day, which in fairness, I, I can't guarantee that's not still going to be the case in about 45 minutes here. Um, all of a sudden, I was struck with the message of Hebrews 4. And God used what I had been studying all week, what I'd been reading over and over again to understand, to calm my heart, to quiet my heart, and to prepare me to rest and trust in him for this very moment. I don't know what sort of a week you've had. I don't know what sort of a night you had last night. I don't know what sort of a month or a season of life you're going through. But I do pray that God would use this text in your heart this week. I want to read Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 10, because I think there's something here for all of us here this morning. Read with me, Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, 
As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of, their, of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for what we've already sung, the truth of your word, uh, the truth of our reliance on you, the fact that you are our fortress, you are the cornerstone, you are our rock and our redeemer. You are the one we run to in times of trouble, but first we run to you for our salvation. So Lord, as we seek to understand this challenging, tricky passage, I pray that you would speak through your word, speak through me, use your Holy Spirit in the lives of these people, help them to rest and find their confidence in Christ. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in case you haven't been with us over the course of the series in Hebrews, this Is He Enough series, let me catch you up to speed just a bit, because understanding what we've been talking about in the book is important for this particular passage. The author of Hebrews has been making the point that Christ is supreme over all, that Christ is better than everything else. He starts off by talking about how Christ is greater than the angels, the messengers of God in chapter 1. He moves on in chapter 3 to talk about how Christ is greater than Moses. Christ as the son is better than Moses as the servant. In the end of chapter 4, moving into chapter 5, he's going to explain how Christ is a greater high priest than the old system. But here in this middle section, here in chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 13, he offers how Christ offers a better rest. He says that Christ also offers a better rest. You probably noticed this theme of rest as we read through the passage, um, but it does get a little bit complicated. The, the, the logic is a little confusing. We struggle a little bit with some of the things he brings up. So we're going to try to walk through this, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer a definition here on the front end of the talk. I'm going to offer a definition, and then I'm going to seek to support the different parts of it as we walk through the passage. So we're going to fill in those pieces to make the argument to understand this definition. So let me just read the definition here at the front end. What is Hebrews for rest? What are we talking about this morning? Bear with me. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read it. Hebrews for rest is the active, ongoing participation in the peace of God. It is initiated at creation, exemplified in the rests of Sabbath and the promised land, made available to all believers through faith in the finished work of Christ, and ultimately realized in heaven one day. Hebrews 4 rest is the active ongoing participation in the peace of God, initiated at creation, exemplified in the rests of Sabbath and the promised land, made available to all believers through faith in the finished work of Christ, and ultimately realized in heaven one day. We're going to work through this passage from beginning to end in four major parts and try to support the different portions of that definition. We're going to see first in verses 1 through 3 the problem, the warning that the author of Hebrews issues to his listeners. 
We're going to move from there into the paradigm of Genesis rest in verses 3 through 5, and we're going to see how God establishes rest. Then we're going to see the present as David addresses the issue in Psalm 95 in verses 6 through 8. And finally, we're going to talk about the principle. What does this mean for our rest? What is the point of this passage in verses 9 through 11? And we're going to try to fill in that definition and highlight the different points of it. But let's start with the problem. Let's start by looking at verse 1. The first thing that we read here is, therefore, which we know means there's a reason we have to stop and consider the context of what's going on here. So what is the context? In case you missed Tom's message last week as he started in on chapter 3, what chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 13 is, is an extended explanation of Psalm 95. The author of Hebrews goes back to a Psalm of David, and he uses that to explain the better rest that Christ provides to his people. And as Tom said last week, the essential message of this talk is an exhortation to persevere. It's an exhortation to perseverance in the Christian life. Look at chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. It's the heart of this message. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The exhortation is to perseverance. But the author continues that argument by talking about some points in Israel's history. And the first thing we have to note, though, before we move into kind of explaining this rest, is that this rest is first and foremost God's rest. Look at the way rest is used through this chapter. His rest, meaning God's rest, is used in verse 18 of chapter 3 and verse 1 of chapter 4. That rest, looking back to God's rest, is used in verse 3 and again in verse 11. God refers to his own rest as my rest in verses 3 and verses five, or verse 5. And then finally in verse 4 and then in verse 10, God says God rested and it was God's rest. So first and foremost, to understand this, we have to start with the premise that the rest we're talking about here is God's rest. It's something he offers to us, something we participate in that is first and foremost God's. But then we dive into this text here and we see the first thing, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, verse one, God's rest is still offered. There is a current reality, there is a present implication of the rest he's going to talk about. We'll talk about that more here in just a moment. But secondly, that verse goes on in verse 1, let us fear lest any of you should have failed to reach it. So God's rest is still offered here, but God's rest may be missed. There is a way to miss the rest that God offers. And he's been going back on an example here for us to understand. Tom talked about it last week, so I don't want to belabor the point, but Numbers 13 and 14 talks about Israel's history. When Israel was saved out of Egypt, they had the 10 plagues, Pharaoh finally let them go, they come out, they go through the Red Sea, they wander around the desert, they come to the promised land, this future rest that God has promised to them. Moses says, Caleb, Joshua, these other 10 spies, you go into the land, tell us what's in the land. The 10 or the 12 spies go into the land, they bring back the report. Two of them say, we can take them, God's with us. 10 of them say, they're giants, we're going to get eaten alive. The people side with the ten. 
As a result, even though God has pulled them out of Egypt, rescued them with 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and manna every day in the wilderness, they don't have the faith to enter the promised land. And so as a result, God says, you're going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until this generation has died out and your children are going to enter the rest. Your children are going to enter the promised land. And so they missed the rest that God had offered to them. And he uses this in his example to the, pe- to the people today. He says, this rest may be missed because this rest requires active faith and trust in God. Look at verse 2 and 3. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because, why? They were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So he says, just like the people of Israel who had been rescued out of Egypt, but didn't have the faith and trust in God to enter the promised land, this rest requires an active faith and trust in God. And this is the point of Hebrews 11, is it not? Here in a few weeks, or probably, let's be honest, in a few months, we're going to get to Hebrews 11. Okay, And Hebrews 11 starts off with what is probably a familiar passage to many of you. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the Israelites, that meant they were saved out of Egypt, and they had never seen the promised land. And there was this future hope that they had to trust God for. And they didn't have the assurance. They did not have the faith to trust God for it. And what Hebrews 11 goes on to explain is a long list of people who, by faith, obeyed God. By faith, they obeyed God. And so this God's rest requires an active faith and trust in who he is and what he's promised. And we know that that faith is a belief and trust in Christ and the gospel because he's already said it in chapter 3, verse 14. Go back. Chapter 3, verse 14 says, For we have come to share in Christ if we indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Original confidence. The gospel and our belief in Christ that saved us to begin with. And so we see from Israel's failure to enter the promised land that there is a greater rest God provides to his people that can be missed if it isn't grounded in the active faith and trust in Christ. So we see that this faith is an active trust It is a participation in the peace of God, and it is made available to all believers through the finished work of Christ. And from here, the author then backtracks a bit. He highlights another moment in the biblical account, the moment of creation where God establishes this paradigm for the rest he's talking about in the first place. Look at verse 3. For we, have been belie- or for we who have believed have entered that rest, as he said, and as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, when was the foundation of the world? Those of us that are familiar with our Bibles go, we're talking about Genesis 1 and 2 here. We're talking about the beginning of the story. And what we learn there is that God establishes his rest in the seventh day of creation. Look at verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken, I love that, he has somewhere spoken, as if we're not familiar with the text that is, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. So we learn from the creation narrative that this rest of God was established as a paradigm in Genesis 2. 
Now let's go back there. I don't want you to actually turn there in your Bibles, but most of you are probably familiar with the Genesis account, the creation account. What we read there is, there was day one, and God created, and he saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Day number two, God created, God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning the second day. Day three, creation, good, evening and morning. Four, five, six, creation, good, evening and morning. Day seven, and God rested from all that he had done, makes the seventh, seventh day holy, and what's missing? There's no evening and morning the seventh day. Have you ever noticed that reading the Genesis account? There is no evening and morning the seventh day. And I would submit to you that that's an intentional omission. That this rest that God experiences on the seventh day, that he creates this paradigm for, he then invites this people into. God creates this perfect place, the Garden of Eden. God establishes this perfect relationship of authority between him and Adam and Eve and the world. And he invites those people into this perfect rest, this perfect place. And what do Adam and Eve do? Genesis 3. This rest is undone. They say, God, I don't want your perfect place. God, I don't want your perfect authority. God, I don't want your perfect plan. I want to do my own thing. And as a result, the world is cursed. Adam is cursed. Eve is cursed. The snake is cursed. And the world descends into toil and the lack of rest. Rest is undone. Rest is lost in some ways in Genesis 3. But God's rest is also exemplified. There's this hope, this glimmer of hope offered throughout the rest of the Old Testament. We see that in verse 4 and 5. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day, first when he created, but also this would have ushered up all the remembrance of the Sabbath and the seventh day for the Hebrew readers. He's spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And this rest, we know, isn't so much about God resting from his physical labor because he was tired, as it was a sense of peace, completion, and satisfaction in a work that had been accomplished. And this becomes the paradigm for Israel's seventh-day Sabbath. It becomes the paradigm for these other festivals and Sabbaths that Israel celebrated over and over and over again, a reminder of the paradigm that God established in Genesis 2. And so he goes back to Genesis. He establishes this paradigm, and we learn that this paradigm for peaceful rest was established by God in creation and repeatedly exemplified for Israel and us throughout the Old Testament. This theme of rest laces all the scriptures together. It's one of the most common themes in the whole, new Bi or the whole Bible. I don't have the time to go through all of it, but it establishes a paradigm that we look to. But at this point, the author of Hebrews feels the need to address an objection. Because he knows what objection is probably coming in the part of his listeners, and they're probably asking themselves, as you may well be asking yourself, hold on a second. So is God's rest past, or is God's rest present? Because, because I know the people didn't enter the promised land with Moses because they rebelled and they wandered around the desert for 40 years, but, but didn't Joshua lead them into that promised land? Wasn't the rest achieved when Joshua led them into the promised land? To address this, he brings up two more moments in Israel's history and ultimately points forward to the present reality, David's rest, verses 6 through 8. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, hold there, 
he reiterates two points he's already made earlier in the chapter. Did you pick up on that? Again, he says, God's rest is still open, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And secondly, he says, God's rest can be missed for disobedience, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Now, we already know what this disobedience is that he's talking about, because he's already told us in verse 2, for good news came to them just as, or to us, just as them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The disobedience he's talking about in verse 6 is the lack of faith he's already mentioned. So he reiterates that God's rest is open, that God's rest can be missed for disobedience. And then verse 7, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. David, the author of Psalm 95 that he's been explaining here, was king at about 1,000 B.C., okay? We've been talking about Moses and the Israelites coming out of the Exodus, which was a little before 1400 B.C. He's jumping all over the place, okay? But hold that. David over here, 1,000 years B.C., verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. David, 1,000 B.C., Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt about 1450 B.C., Joshua leading the people into the Promised Land about 1400 B.C. Do you see his logic here? He's saying God established this paradigm in the creation of the world. The Israelites missed out on it with Moses. But when Joshua introduced the people to the land, they still didn't fully realize that rest because David wrote about it 400 years later and said this is still available when they were established in the land of Israel. And yet if we read, we also learn that this rest wasn't fully realized in David's reign either. This afternoon, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but this afternoon I'd encourage you to read 2 Samuel verse or chapter 7. It's a fascinating inter, or inter, uh, interaction between David, Samuel, and God. David has just built himself a new palace. David is saying, I'm living in this fantastic palace, this house of cedar, and God, your tabernacle and everything is still out there in a tent. Can I build a temple for you? God refuses, but he promises that his eventual security in the land will come, and he will, quote, have rest from his enemies. And he immediately moves on to make the promise of a future king, one of David's sons, who will reign forever on David's throne. Coincidence? I think not. See, because David's actual first son, Solomon, we see this glimmer of hope. We see rest in some ways on all sides for Israel. They're not fighting, and there's this golden era for Israel, but then Solomon fails miserably, and Israel tumbles back into decline again. And we clearly realize that David's reign didn't provide the rest that God offered here either. So we realize that even entrance into this promised land, the physical land of Israel, didn't fully achieve the rest God offers. In fact, it just served to point Israel to a certain future day. And now, having smashed all of these different periods of time together in Hebrews 4, the author can now summarize all of this history with an explanation and a principle in chapter 4, verse 9 through 11. 
So then he writes, So then, as an implication of everything that I've said so far, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The principle is there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. God's Sabbath rest remains. Now hold on a second. I know what you're thinking. What does that mean? Okay? Throughout the fourth chapter of Hebrews, this author has been using one term for rest. It's used seven or eight times through this chapter. Rest, 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 rest. He comes to verse 9, and he uses a different word. He uses a different word, which is why it's translated Sabbath rest. And at this point, I want to caution us just a bit. Because this word is only used here in the book of Hebrews, it's also only used here in the entire New Testament. So we want to be a little cautious how we interpret it. And suffice it to say, there's some debate over how to interpret this verse amongst biblical scholars. Some would argue that this is some special future provided for ethnic Israel, that, and they restrict the people of God here to just ethnic Israel. But I think that's pulling this text a bit out of context. I think it's making it say something that it's not saying. It's divorcing it from the implications and the applications that the author is trying to stress. So I think a better interpretation here would be this Sabbath rest in verse 9 is a spiritual reality offered to all God's people. It's a spiritual reality offered to all God's people, and that's supported by the verses that follow. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What? Verse 10. For, because of that, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. I think the point the author is trying to make here is there remains a Sabbath rest, and that rest is both a current reality and a future hope. Verse 10 and 11. First, a current reality. We can rest in Christ today. Verse 10 says, for whoever has entered, past tense, God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Again, the paradigm is God's. Now flip to the left in your Bibles to Matthew 11, because Christ makes a fascinating statement in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. This may be a familiar passage to some of you, but odds are you're only familiar with the last few verses. So let me read this whole section and see what Christ has to say here. In light of the paradigm that God has established, in light of all of these pointing things in Israel's history, Christ comes on the scene and in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 11 says this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ, knowing the Old Testament, comes on the scene and says this. And it's no coincidence that immediately following this in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11, they have an argument about the Sabbath. 
So while the disciples and the Pharisees are arguing about the Sabbath and what the Sabbath means, Christ says, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. The very thing that that was meant to be pointing to. And I can't help but think in the end of John's gospel in chapter 9, verse 13, or 30, after Christ has taken on the full wrath of God, after he's paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, Christ sits on the cross and finishes with these words, it is finished. It's done. The work is complete. I've accomplished the task I came to do. And we know that he's buried, that he's raised again three days later, that he's seen by many people, he ascends to the Father, and what do Colossians 3.1 and Hebrews 8.1 tell us? Christ sits down at the Father's right hand because the work is done. Can't help but recall the famous words of Augustine of Hippo at this point, right? You have made us for yourselves, O Lord, for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We can rest in Christ today. But also, we will rest in Christ or with Christ one day. Verse 11, go back to Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So clearly there is an already but not yet aspect to this rest that God holds out for his people. Already they have experienced that rest in Christ, but not yet do they fully realize that rest that is held out yet in the future. So in spite of being able to find spiritual rest today in Christ, we also anticipate the day when every aspect of our experience, every aspect of our bodies, every aspect of our world, every aspect of our lives confirm the spiritual rest we have only just tasted today. One day when Christ makes that rest fully realized. When Christ restores the Genesis 1 and 2 rest that the paradigm established, in Revelation 21 and 22. So finally, we see that this rest that God offers is both a reality and comfort today, and it serves as a motivation to persevere to the eternal end when it will be fully realized. So one more time, let me come back to our original definition here having walked through what is admittedly a debated and confusing passage, I submit to you this definition of Hebrews for rest. It is an active, ongoing participation in the peace of God, initiated at creation, exemplified through the rest of Sabbath and the promised land, made available to all believers through the faith or faith in the finished work of Christ, and ultimately realized one day in heaven. You're saying, thank you, Brad, that's great. If I was an aspiring theologian that wanted to get a doctoral degree on rest from Hebrews, I would have really appreciated that. What's the point? 
Why do we get this diatribe on rest? Why do we get this really confusing passage on rest sandwiched right here in the middle? Why doesn't the author of Hebrews just move from Moses being greater, or from Jesus being greater than Moses, to Jesus being greater than the high priests? I would submit to you four things to consider this morning. For those of us working in our own strength to satisfy God's perfect standard, living our lives thinking if we can accomplish enough good things, we can do enough good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds in our lives, then maybe someday we'll make it into heaven. Putting our hope and faith in that maybe we've done enough good things to outweigh the bad. I pray that we would find salvation rest from that toil in the finished work of Christ. Trying to accomplish your salvation in your own strength, living up to God's holy standard in your own power, is a toil that will destroy you. It's not possible. The question you have to ask yourself is, is Christ enough for your salvation rest? Is the God who became man that is described in this book enough to pay the penalty for your sin so that you can place your faith and hope entirely in Christ? As the Reformation put it, by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Second, for those of us striving every day, driven by a tyranny of the idols in our lives, a desire to please the people around us, a desire to gratify our own hearts and our own ambitions, a desire to make ourselves happy and achieve what we want in this life, I would pray that we would embrace the peaceful rest that God offers his followers. There is a peaceful rest knowing that Christ has done it all. We're going to talk about an active rest here in a moment. So I'm not saying this is a let go and let God and doesn't matter what you do in this life. But in a day out, day in way, are you embracing the peace of the fact that Christ has done it all? The question you have to ask is, is Christ enough for your peaceful rest? Third, for those of us that have grown complacent in our relationships with Christ, maybe at one point we know the joy of salvation through Christ, of having the weight of our sin removed, but at this point in this day, there's very little zeal in our hearts. I pray that we would seek the active, joyful rest that comes from obedience to Christ. If you're living your life thinking you can make yourself happy by pursuing whatever whatever you want on any given day, it's going to become a tyranny. The question you have to ask is, is Christ enough for your active, joyful rest? As he said at the beginning, at the end of this section, the promise of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear, lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. In verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. The kind of rest that the author of Hebrews is advocating here is not a complacent rest, but it is an active, joyful rest knowing Christ has paid it all. And finally, and possibly most specific to the original audience of Hebrew 4, 
for those of us that are struggling just to hold on day in and day out. Struggling with the pains of this life, struggling with the trials of this life, struggling just to hold on to our faith for another week until we get back together again. I pray that we will remind ourselves of the eternal rest that we will one day enjoy with Christ. Those of us that are living our lives fearful that this is all there is, experiencing trials and pains and hardship and just struggling to hold on to our faith, remembering that one day Christ has promised to wipe away every tear, that death will mean no more, that crying and pain will be no more, for the former things have passed away and God sits on his throne saying, I will make everything new. I will restore the perfect rest that I established at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 someday in Revelation 21 and 22. The question we need to ask is, is Christ enough for your eternal rest? Is Christ enough for your eternal rest? I want to wrap up this morning with an old hymn from the 1800s that you may be or may not be familiar with. It's entitled, Jesus, I Am Resting, Resting. It's said to be a favorite of Hudson Taylor's. I don't know if you're familiar with Hudson Taylor's story, but he was one of the first missionaries to take the gospel into inland China. And in spite of so many trials and so many hardships in his life, the loss of fellow missionaries and co-workers, stories say that in the middle of the night when he couldn't sleep, Hudson Taylor could be heard humming this hymn. Let me read it for you and we'll close. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee and thy beauty fills my soul. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. Oh, how great thy loving kindness, vaster, broader than the sea, Oh, how marvelous thy goodness lavished all on me. Yes, I rest in thee, beloved, knowing what wealth of grace is thine. Know thy certainty of promise and have made it mine. Simply trusting thee, Lord Jesus, I behold thee as thou art. And thy love so pure, so changeless, satisfies my heart. Satisfies its deepest longings, meets, supplies its every need. Compasseth me round with blessings, thine is love indeed. Ever lift thy face upon me as I work and wait for thee, resting neath thy smile, Lord Jesus. Jesus, earth's dark shadows flee. Brightness of my Father's glory, sunshine of my Father's face, keep me ever trusting, resting, fill me with thy grace. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can rest in you. That we can know you, that you've provided salvation for us. Lord, if there's anyone sitting here today, this morning, that is striving and struggling to earn their righteousness before you, I pray that you would help them to know that they can rest in Christ's salvation for them. Lord, for those of us that are tyrannized by the things that this world holds dear, 
that struggles chasing everything, looking for fulfillment in the things of this life. Help us to rest peacefully in the joy of you. For those of us that are complacent, that have grown complacent, that have lost the joy and zeal that came from first knowing you and having you forgive our sins, I pray that you would restore to us this active, joyful obedience. And finally, for those that are just barely holding on this week, that are struggling to rest and trust you for the future and eternity, I pray that you would help them find eternal rest in you, anticipating the day when you will one day call us into your perfect rest in heaven. Father, we thank you for this passage. We pray that this would continue to go with us over the course of this week to challenge us and encourage us. We thank Christ for the work he's done in us and through us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.